the Lord be with you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that the lawyer asks Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in response, Jesus tells a story. It's a story about a man who's walking down a notoriously dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And along the way, he's accosted by robbers who beat him, strip him, leave him half dead by the side of the road. And then Jesus tells us about a couple people who must do things. First, a priest walks by this man who has been robbed. And this priest must do things. This priest must lead worship. This priest must teach Bible study. This priest must must make sure the AV system is working before worship starts, yeah? And because the priest must do these things, there are things that the priest must not do. The priest must not be late for his appointment. The priest must not delay himself by touching a a potential corpse which would defile him and and require him to go through uh, purification rites before he could do his job again. The priest must not put his life in danger because there are people relying on him so he doesn't want to get involved where there are potentially robbers. And so the priest sees the man lying beside the road, and the priest crosses by to the other side. And then a Levite walks by. And the Levite is also a religious professional. Um, Levites aren't ordained. They're not priests. They have administrative functions in the church. We might think of them as, as like one of our staff members here at the church, right? And the Levite has things that he must do. He must lead the choir. He must prepare the service project for the congregation. He must remind the congregation if they want to see for themselves Jerusalem and Jericho, they need to sign up for the Holy Land trip by this Friday. Yes. And because the Levite must do all these things, there are things he must not do, right? He must not get sick. Who knows what's happening with this guy who's lying beside the side of the road? He must not get overwhelmed by taking on more responsibilities than he can handle and and end up not doing any of the things that he's supposed to do. The Levite must do his job. And if it feels like I'm picking on religious people, it's because Jesus is. By naming first a priest and then a Levite as the people who do not help the man beside the road, Jesus is calling us who are religious out and saying, hey, how are you loving your neighbor? Because we religious people, right, we want to do the right thing. If if we hear that what God requires of us is to love God and love our neighbor, well, we say, all right, give me details. I want to know how do I do it. I want to do it in the right way. Because look, there's a lot of people out there. So which one of them are my neighbors and how do I know when I've successfully loved them? But the moment we do that, the moment we do that, we turn love into a checklist. Suddenly, love becomes a series of expectations and obligations. Suddenly, love becomes a list of committee meetings and service projects, a list so long that it tangles our feet and trips us up until we don't want to go near anyone who's going to add one more thing to our must-do list. Which is why when we see someone lying on the side of the road, 
we pass by on the other side. But it's not just people on the side of the road, right? When our life has become a series of must-dos, suddenly we find ourselves looking at a phone call, maybe a phone call from that friend who's always kind of needy, and we think to ourselves, oh, I don't know if I have time to take on one more thing, and, and we maybe just let it go to voicemail. Or our family member who, no matter what year it is, they're always in some life crisis, maybe we find ourselves just losing contact with that family member. Sometimes we find ourselves closing our eyes to all the problems that are going on in the world. Because if we open our eyes and we see them, then we feel a responsibility to do something about it. It's one more thing we must do, and we can't do anything else. And so we rather not do anything at all. And it's this feeling that makes me groan every time I hear one of the introduction to Paul's epistles. So, we read the introduction to Colossians today, and Stephen did a beautiful job of reading that. But when he read it, my eyes started to glaze over. Because every one of Paul's epistles starts in the exact same way. He says, oh, look, it's me, it's Paul, I'm writing to you, and I give thanks for you, and uh, I give thanks for all the people there, and I'm praying for you. And it's like, fine, Paul, get on with it. I got things to do. I don't have time to listen to you greet people, say how much you love them and care about them. I have ministry to attend to. And in that moment, life itself becomes a checklist, a must-do list. And it's, and it's this attitude that I think is responsible for texts becoming way more popular than phone calls. right? Because if you call someone on the phone, you have to say, oh, hey, hello, how are you doing? How's life? Yes, okay, here's the thing I wanted to talk to you about. But if you just text them, you can just say, hey, here's what I want you to know. You can skip all the small talk. And it's the same thing with emails versus meeting, right? There's all the jokes of like another meeting that could have been an email, right? Because if you go to a meeting, you have to sit next to people and look at them. And once again, you go, hey, how's your family? Oh, I remember that thing happened to you, whatever came of that. But if you just send an email, you can literally create a bullet point checklist of here's all the things people need to do and here's who's going to do it. We can get on with the important work of life, of love, of ministry. But if life is just a series of things that we must do, Paul is in trouble. Because when Paul writes to the Colossians, Paul is in jail. He literally can't do anything. He's stuck. If life is completing what we must do, Paul has already lost his life. But in every one of Paul's letters, Paul makes the point that Jesus has come to set us free. And so when Paul is in jail, he doesn't focus on what he must do and can't. He focuses on what he is free to do. And despite being in jail, what Paul is free to do is to write a letter. What Paul is free to do is to love the people to whom he is writing that letter. And yes, he will give them good theology and instructions on godly living, but before he does all those things, Paul loves these people by saying that he is grateful for them, by celebrating that the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives, that he has heard about how they take care of one another. And Paul, he goes on to realize that he is free to love them by praying for them, and so he tells them this. Paul realizes 
he is free. And he uses that freedom to love people in the ways that he can. And in the parable that we heard this morning, it is the Samaritan who also realizes that he is free. So, what is a Samaritan? A Samaritan is very similar to a Jewish person. For those of you who are a little hazy on your Bible history, King Solomon rules over a unified Israel, but his son is not a very good king, wants to raise taxes on everyone, and so the people in the north say, forget this, we're going to have our own kingdom. You Judeans down in Judah, who will become the Jews, you can have your own kingdom. We're going to have our own country, we're going to worship where we want to worship, we're not going to worry about you. And those northerners, through a series of historical and cultural events, they become Samaritans. They become mixed with other Gentile communities, and, and they read the first five books of the Bible that we do and that Jewish people do, but they don't read any of the others. They don't read the works of the prophets or the poetry. They say, no, we just stick to those first five books of the Bible. We might think, so uh, a Samaritan is to a Jew the way we might think that a Jewish person is to us as Christian, right? We share an overlapping set of scriptures, but we worship in completely different ways. But it goes deeper than that, because in addition to these differences in, in theology and in scripture and how they worship, there is an animosity between the northern Samaritans and the southern Jews. An animosity that can only come from being in relationship to someone who's similar to you, but just enough difference to really tick you off. So, so when Jesus tells the story, he tells, right, the, the priest and the Levite, and then finally it's the Samaritan who does the good thing. It might be us telling a story where there's, there's someone from Durham and someone from Chico, but they don't help the guy. Instead, it's someone from Los Angeles who helps the guy. What? Or, or for those of us who have spent a lot of time in the ELCA, right, we might say, oh, it's not the Episcopalian or the ELCA Lutheran who helps this guy. It's the Missouri Synod Lutheran. <laughs> oh, no. Right? They're like us, but just enough difference that we really hate it. Or, of course, you can put in there right, your, your least favorite political party. That's the person who comes and help this, helps this guy. The, the Jewish scholar um, uh, Jill Levine notes that at the end of the story, right, Jesus says, who's the one who's actually a neighbor to this guy? The lawyer can't bring himself to say the word Samaritan, right? It's such a vile word in his mouth that he refuses to say. He says, ah, the one who showed him mercy. But to say for all their differences, the Jews and the Samaritans, they share the same law. In the Bible, when it talks about God's law, it's referring to the five, first five books of the Bible, the Torah, which the Jews and the Samaritans share. When the lawyer answers, love your God and love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting two books from the Torah, which a Samaritan shares. And God gives those books of law, saying that everything God puts in there is so that we might have life. God gives us every single law so that we might have life. And because of this, every single rabbi throughout history has said, look, if there's ever an instance in which you need to break one of the laws to save a life, do it. Because the law only exists that we might have life. Which means the priest and the Levite, when they pass by on the other side, it's not because God is saying that they must do that. It's because they are setting their must-do list above the purpose of God's law. 
Now look, the Samaritan has the same laws, and the Samaritan might have a different must-do list from the priest and the Levite, but the Samaritan still has a must-do list. Right? This is a man who is on a journey far from home. He's down in that southern part of Judah, surrounded by Jewish folks, but he's got a pack animal and he's got resources enough that he can plop down two days' wages at a hotel for a stranger he doesn't know. This is clearly a man of means. And you don't become a man of means unless you have obligations and you fulfill them. And so the Samaritan has a must-do list, and this must-do list prevents him from doing many things. Right? This must-do list prevents the Samaritan from spending more than a single night with the man who's been robbed. The must-do list prevents the Samaritan from seeing the man's recovery all the way through. The Samaritan's must-do list prevents him from providing an escort for this man to make sure he reaches his destination safely. It prevents him from rounding up a posse and going and finding those bandits and getting the man's stuff back. But for all the things that the Samaritan's must-do list prevents him from doing, the Samaritan also realizes that he has freedom, that he is free to do things also. The Samaritan realizes he is free to just go and see what happened to this guy who's by the side of the road. And when the Samaritan sees that he's injured, the Samaritan realizes that he is free to help bandage the man. He is free to, to pour wine and oil on his wounds, sanitizing those wounds and strengthening the man. The Samaritan realizes he is free to put the man on his animal and take him to the nearest hotel, and that the Samaritan is free to plop down his credit card and say to the clerk, let this man stay here until he's healed. The Samaritan is free to do all these things despite all the other things that he must do. And because the Samaritan focuses not on what he must do and can't do, but focuses on what he is free to do, in that moment, the Samaritan is free. Because for him, neither life nor love has become a checklist. It has become about relationships, relationships of love and joy. And if you have struggle believing this, that maybe love is not a checklist, that it's in fact a relationship of seeing the other person and asking what you were free to do with them, I feel there is no better illustration of this than the difference between wedding planning and being married. Yes, so it's wedding season. And I'm meeting with several couples right now. And I always ask couples every time we meet, how are things going, you know, as you're getting ready for your wedding? And inevitably, the couples always say, terribly. I go, oh, but isn't, you're getting ready for your wedding. Isn't this supposed to be the happiest time of your life? And they all say, no, because we have to, like, print uh, 200 personalized invitations. We have to pick a color scheme. We have to put together swag bags and party favors. We have to put together centerpieces for all the tables. There's all these things we must do to get married. And I always say to them, there's only one thing that you must do to get married, and that's say, I do, in front of me and two other witnesses. That's it. But they never believe me. They never believe me, and it's always inevitably, the morning before the wedding, the, the bride is up till 2 a.m. making those centerpieces, which no one will remember the next day. I, I actually talked to a groom, actually a couple grooms have said this. I've asked them, so, you got married, was it the happiest day of your life? 
And they've said to me, no, the day after my wedding was the happiest day of my life. And I get that, right? Because as much as I have tried to tell couples, there is no must-do list for getting married. I didn't take that advice. Annalise and I had an elaborate, huge wedding. It was beautiful. But I will say the biggest fights, some of the biggest fights we've ever had as a couple have been in planning that wedding. Because we weren't arguing with each other about what we wanted, our must-do lists were arguing with each other about we must, what we must do for that wedding. The day after we got married, right, there's still things that need to get done. Someone's got to make dinner. Someone's got to take out the trash. But it's no longer, here are the things that someone has told me I must do to love Annalisa, to have the opportunity to love Annalisa. It is instead, hey, I love Annalisa. I should see what she could use today. What could I do to make her day better? What am I free to do to show her love? And it may look like making dinner or taking out the trash, but it's done out of joy and gratitude. When Jesus asks at the end of the parable, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, the answer is not the guy who paid for the hotel. The answer is the one who showed him mercy. Because it's not a checklist about what we're supposed to do, it's a relationship about seeing the other person and asking what we are free to do. That's what it's about. Jesus isn't kind, trying to convince us all that we now have to have a personal ministry of driving around town, finding people by the side of the road, picking them up and taking them to hotels. No, that is not the answer to what we must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus tells this story, tells this story because the truth of the matter is, the person who was robbed in this story is not just the man by the side of the road. The person in this story who is robbed is the one who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because once we turn life, once we turn our relationship with God into a must-do list, we are robbed. We are robbed of joy. We are stripped of hope and, and beaten, beaten out of gratitude. We are robbed of half the life that Jesus intends for us, which is why Jesus, in response to the man, doesn't say, yes, if you do these things, you will inherit eternal life. Jesus simply says, if you love God and love your neighbor, you will live because that is life, loving Seeing someone for who they are and asking, what am I free to do? That is life, not a checklist. And so, when we find ourselves in that position of being the one who has been robbed of life because we are convinced that it is a checklist, in that moment, it is Jesus who comes near to us. It is Jesus who becomes our good Samaritan, Jesus comes near to us in our brokenness and our suffering by coming to us on the cross. Jesus bandages our wounds and he pours out the blood that is wine to clean them. He anoints us with oil to claim us as priests and kings, as prophets to bring forth the kingdom of God. Jesus picks us up and carries us to his father's house 
And Jesus pays the bill so that we might stay there forever without worry about what we have to do to earn our place and only celebrate that there is room enough to welcome others. Jesus is our good Samaritan who transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness, darkness because we have put a to-do list in front of our eyes and instead transfers us into his own kingdom where we are free to see the people around us and ask what we are free to do to show them love. Now look, I know each and every one of you has a long must-do list for this week. But I want you to know that God has not put a single item on that list. Because God doesn't want you walking through life staring at your list. God wants you looking up at the world, seeing the people around you, not worried about having to add one more thing to your to-do list, but excited that you can make a neighbor. Excited that you can share God's love with someone. And so this week, I want to invite you When you feel overwhelmed by that must-do list, ask yourself, who put the items on that list? And then ask yourself, what happens if I take a moment and look up from the list just to see the people around me, whether they're people on the street or in the store or in my own house, and ask yourself not what must I do, but what am I free to do to share God's love and joy with them that together we might have the fullness of life. Amen.